so when John at the beginning of the gospel says in the beginning was the logos and the logos was with God and the logos was God that had to have hit a Greek like a ton of bricks welcome to classical etc you're in the studio with Memoria Press hello and welcome to classical etc my name is Jessica Gardner I'm your host today and my role here at Memoria Press is to facilitate and serve the families at Memoria Academy, where we do online classes with the Memoria Press materials. And today I'm here with Martin Cothran, Tanya Charlton, and Paul Schaefer. Today we're going to be discussing the mind of Martin and one of oh, his gosh. recent <laughs> articles. What a fascinating subject. Oh my gosh. Okay. I'm- and I didn't even... I I am out of here. I didn't even propose that. She just came up with it. I like you, Jessica. (laughs) (laughs) And specifically, his recent article in the winter edition of The Classical Teacher, where he gives us frameworks for approaching reason and faith. Are they rivals? Is there a tension? And what difference does it make? It's going to be a really good discussion. But before we get there, what do we always do? Talk about what we're reading. So, Tanya, do you want to start us? Yes. Okay. I just finished um, my last holiday read, which was A British Murder Mystery by C.S. Harris. It's a series that I really like. Don't write that down because every murder mystery you've ever read. You write it down. You know she's reading a murder mystery. Jessica thinks that she should love murder mysteries, but she doesn't. So, everyone she reads that's recommended, she doesn't like. So, I don't know (laughs) why she continues. I hated it. (laughs) She continues to try, though, which I don't. Louise Penny, one of my favorites, if not my favorite. Nope. Not for Jessica, but she keeps wanting. Like, I'm going to write that down. I think I need to be recommending her the murder mysteries because yours are all very prim and Oh, goodness. You want to be recommending murder mysteries? You want her to read James Lee Burke? No, no, we we are not. We're not going to let Martin say yay or nay on that. Anyway, I've picked up with volume two of War and Peace. And I thought, it's been the whole Christmas holiday that I haven't read it. So, actually, it was before that. Mm -hmm. In between volume one and volume two, I've read two British murder mysteries, David Copperfield and Demon Copperhead. (laughs) So, it's been a couple months since I read War and Peace. But I picked it up, volume two, yesterday, because I've got to get back on it. And I just thought, this is just beautiful. I mean, I went right back into the story. I There are a million characters, so I did have to do a little bit of homework to remember who was what family. But it really is beautifully written. And I and I know that's the translation. Um, no, it's, I don't think But it's a lot of it is. Yeah. It has to be. Um, and I've so I looked up these translators because we use them a lot. Mm-hmm. Pavir and his wife, which, whose name I, it's a Russian name. Well, it turns out he's American and she's Russian. And so it 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 makes sense that it works. So she and their process, I read, was that he writes, no, she does the first translation and then he reads it and styles it in an American voice. And then they collaborate together and then they both work side by side on the final like it goes through like three or four different iterations before they're ever satisfied with it and so that's why it's beautiful 
three or four iterations of War and Peace takes like 30 I, years. Seriously. <laughs> I mean, that's a lot well, and, of work. And the whole question of translations, it, it's it's sort of like uh, audiobooks. You know, a a good, a, a, a bad reader can ruin the book for you and a good and reader can make it. That's right. Same thing really with translators. Yeah, absolutely. And and I, I tell you, I had, I, I feel like um, I had a bad reader when I read um, another Russian novel, uh, uh, Brothers Karamazov. Mm. And so I, 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 I had some problems with it, but I think a lot of them were mm. just the reader. And so I need to go back and read that book with a, with Do you a know competent who your reader translator a was? Well, uh, Constance Garnet. I'm, I'm, I think that it was the Constance Garnet translation. I, this is what I was coming but to. But you don't like Garnet. I don't like Constance Garnet. And she was the one <laughs> who did really, uh, I think there were two older translations of, um, of, of, of Tolstoy anyway. And one was Constance Garnett. She also translated Dostoevsky. Mm-hmm. And, um, but then Louise and Eilmer Maud. Yes. M-A-U-D? Yes. Or D-E? Um, I think, uh, I, I can't remember. But, can't but Louise and Eilmer Maud, <clears throat> and they translated Tolstoy. And, you know, I, I did what I did once when I was trying to find a Bible translation, you know, many, many, many years ago. And I, I just, I just put, I took like five different verses of the Bible and I put them all side by side. And chose one? And I chose one. Um, but, uh, but if I was to do that, and I did that with, with War and Peace. And the mod translation is so much better. It's just well, an, put it beside Pavir and see what you think. Well, that, and I have not read mm-hmm. Pavir. I know that's the one that, that we sell and I... I do. I need to read. I need to read Pavir. Yeah. Yeah. I remember what I don't, I would imagine I was reading Garnett's or Maud's translation of War and Peace when I read it when I was like 18. Probably so. Cause they, those right. were really That's the most common. Right. I always and, would have to go running to Martin when people would ask us about translations. Uh, Cause I knew he didn't like one or the other, but I never could remember, remember which, which one. one. Yeah. But, but I've, uh, when I picked up War and Peace a couple months ago, like Pavir's translation I remember slogging through what I read before. But you were also much younger. I was also much younger, but mm. Pavir's translation this time, like, I, I mean, I really got, I enjoyed it. I immediately got right back into it. And I'm, I'm all, I've also just finished Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> Which translation did you use for that? A.A. <laughs> Milne. <laughs> okay. Um, I've been reading a lot of different things for work, but I won't bore you with them. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, how about you? I just finished The Escape Artist. Hmm. Who wrote that? I, I shouldn't have paused because that I was trying to remember. That familiar to me. And I can't remember now who wrote it. Hmm. But it's a really recent book and it's about um, two Jews that escaped Auschwitz with the intent. One of them, um, Verbers, his last name. Well, that's like, like the name he assumes after he gets out. And his real intent was to warn the world about what was happening because he was a Slovak Jew. Mm. So he was like the first wave that got brought. Mm. And then he realized that all of like all these Jews were willing to get on these trains because they thought they were getting resettled. Right. And so he wants to get out and warn the world. And, and I mean, there are some very, there were some very tough parts of that book to listen to because it describes in detail what he experienced But then what I found also very interesting um, was the the last kind of half of the book is after he gets out, what happens and how 
there were people that took that knew he was telling the truth, but still did not want to publicize that information. And kind of his entire life through the fifties, sixties, seventies, eighties, you know, until he dies, he's still like, he's fighting to get, you know, everybody to realize how big of a deal this is. How is it true? Is it a mm-hmm. true story? Oh yeah. It's just a, it's a, just a, uh, like it's a nonfiction. Is it or like an a bi- autobiography. Uh, Did he write it? No, no. This is somebody, cause he, he was in a few documentaries and it was interesting because the foreword tells how the author saw this guy in a documentary like in the eighties and realized he's like, this guy's story needs to be told mm-hmm. in a way like Anne Frank's does and other people's. And so, but it took him about 20, 25 years before he went back around and then started interviewing the the guy himself, his wife, his, you know, his ex-wife and, and, and it was just absolutely fascinating. I'd recommend it. It's hard, hard to read. The first part particularly read. is hard mm-hmm. to read, but it is, but we need but to so remind ourselves. But so was the hiding place mm-hmm. hard to read, mm-hmm. but we mm-hmm. need to right. do it. And the yeah. Holocaust Museum is so hard to visit, but we need to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you, Martin? You want to know what I'm reading? I do. Why don't you ask me first? We would have needed to do them. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> My goodness. <laughs> um, I'm reading The First Fast Draw. A okay. Western? Absolutely. He does of course. Love Westerns. Uh, I, I'm sorry. You just, I love to just, every once in a while, put my hands into the, put myself in the hands of a great storyteller. And it's just, it, you can't put it down. And it's just a great little story of the guy who, we don't, we, we think of Westerns as, you know, they're, they're all the, the, these one-on-one gunfights on the street where they draw the gun. And it, that actually was not the case until fairly late, uh, well after the Civil War. And it's the story of the first guy who thought to do this. Oh, it's, you're it's kidding. Kind of inter- <sighs> yeah, it's kind of interesting. I never thought of that. You know, well, no, they used, you know, they had these, these big, uh, uh, awkward guns that they had, they had to use and all this. Somebody thought, Hey, put, put your, put your gun in your, in your uh, belt or something and then just draw it. And so it's, it's about the, the guy who does that. And it's, a, it's just a great story. Lamour, he knows the, he knows the geography. Oh, it's Louis Lamour. Yeah. He oh, okay. knows the geography. He knows the, um, he knows the names for everything. He knows the region. He knows the names of all the plants. I mean, it's, but this, know, is a, this is a fictional yeah, this story. Is fiction, is we don't know who thought yes. to do that the yes, first time. Right, yeah, right. Okay. But it's, it's, somebody had to do it. So <laughs> might as well be this guy that he writes. <laughs> so I'm, I'm very much enjoying that as I always do. Um, I almost always have a Louis L'Amour going on the mm. side, just, you know, just for pure And you pleasure. make fun of my British murder mysteries. Uh, yeah, and you're constantly well, over there yeah. with a secret drawer full yeah, of well, Louis L'Amour. There's no L'Amour. parlors in, 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 in these westerns, okay? <laughs> um, <laughs> and then... Uh, uh, I'm I'm listening to uh, the peace to end all peace by David, uh, I wrote it down. David uh, Trump, uh, Fromkin hmm. uh, is his name, and it's about how the Middle East got to where it is. It's it, it and they go way, they go before the world World War One, and what happened with the British Mandate and 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 all that stuff, and why the countries hmm. are the way they are. It's great to know this while we're going through all of this stuff in the Middle East right now. Uh, how you know. I mean, uh, so that, that's, that's very interesting. Um, and then I, you know, I, I took off, I had my, my, my two year old grandson's birthday party this last weekend. And I, I don't have my drive from my, my house in Danville anymore. That's over an hour away. And I realized that I, uh, that was my therapy is, is that long drive through the country that I used to make. So I haven't been able to do that. So 
I get out of the party and I put my, my uh, Google maps on uh, to avoid highways and end up taking the old 44 across. It's somewhat parallel to the interstate, but it, it goes through. See, the Wild Turkey Distillery, uh, I, you know, everyone talks about that here in Kentucky because bourbon's so big. And it's, it's a striking thing. And this trestle over the river that goes right to the distillery and an old stone bridge. And it's just like, this is amazing. So and I'm, I'm, I'm listening to <laughs> On the Road by Jack Kerouac, oh. which is, there's one of those, the early hippies, basically. Right, and right. so there's things in there, you know, okay. But, uh, but it was written in 1957. And it's America, he's going across the country and it's America in the late 50s. And I'm on I'm on the road myself. I'm listening to this. I'm having a good old time. And but it was it is so fascinating. And it reminded me a little bit of Travels with Charlie by um John Steinbeck, where he he crosses the country and writes about it in I think it's nineteen sixty six, although listening to it you would think it was even earlier than that. I, I didn't know America was still that way in the sixties. But it's I remember, you know, it was my 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 parents' generation. Um and what America was like back then, and that is that is that is a it's a place that is now gone uh, with the internet, with the advance of technology in all these areas. This was before that. It was it was before the fall, <laughs> in, a, in a certain sense. Um, and there was a certain innocence there. In addition to, I mean, a lot of things were happening, and you know, he's talking about what his friends are doing, and but I just found it utterly fascinating to 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 go back in a time machine using a book. Tracy Lee Simmons wrote a review in the book that we just published by him about some about traveling across the country, but I don't oh. think it was Steinbeck, was it? I don't know. I don't think so. I'll put you on the spot. You but, don't remember no, no. No, what no. it was, and I don't either. Yeah. I was well, going to ask you, though, Harold Bloom, there was a book published posthumously that was like the 40 books you should reread. Do you have, have you? Seen that? I don't. I don't know that I have that. I, that I may sounds, actually. I may have that. Doesn't that sound book, like it. a lot of fun to do with a book group? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. To like just go through those forty books and then his commentary on them and mm-hmm. why you should read them several times. Yeah, and Bloom. I just the guy discovered to do it. it and thought, oh my gosh, this yeah. sounds wonderful. Bloom's if I could the guy get to somebody. Do it. He, once, he once said, "I have read basically every important book that has been written." Huh, he sounds like you. Oh, well, he's well, he's one of those guys who... Who, who, <laughs> who thinks he has. <laughs> he's Who's of, making that he, determination? He's, he's, he's one of those guys who is never uninteresting. He mm. always has something interesting mm-hmm. to say about what he's read because I think he probably did read everything that was important. That means he wasn't helping his wife at all. I was just going to say, I was just going to say, what wasn't he doing he when he doing was reading? That's exactly right. <laughs> Wouldn't we all love that life? <laughs> Oh, privilege. What yeah. are you reading, Jessica? Not a murder mystery, I hope. I'm not. I'm not. I, you know, like I have this eternal search. I'll find it. Um, over Christmas, I got two wonderful cookbooks. And I know that that sounds like a cheat, Mm-mm. but one of them I actually got from a colleague here at the press in a work Christmas book exchange. And I got the Escoffier. It's a French culinary textbook. Big. Oh my gosh. And it is so delightful. No pictures. So it's not a cookbook with pictures. And it's been just a joy to oh read and, you know, historically how they approached food. And it's some of it's so simple. Just fry Brussels sprouts in butter, put as much cream as possible. 
that's it. You know, it's just a million different ways to do. do you, so you like to things. cook? I do. I do. So uh, I don't like to cook, but I really love the British Bake Off. I can't really figure out why. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe because um, it's British. That. Everything about you, Tanya. Yes. I want British I stuff. British, British. She probably watches the There's Westminster a, a Dog Show. There's a lot of their desserts are in the Escoffier because it's so oh, French. Because they yeah. do some French yeah. nights. Yeah. Um, have you ever read MFK Fisher? Mm. The gastronomical me. Oh no! You, no. That's what you should read. Okay. Mfk Fisher, who yes, wrote she uh, wrote, Goodell's, she wrote uh, a lot of paradox or whatever was it? I don't know. She wrote a lot of books, and they all have food in them. They're all really? like yes, fiction, I thought it was fiction, a nonfiction. Really, no, it's a woman. This you must be thinking of somebody else, or did I give the wrong name? I, you may have. Given I'm gonna Google. Okay. Can I Google in here? <laughs> am, am I allowed to Google in here, Tiger? Googling. On the air, we've all, we've all done. we, we, we can to. also not cut it and just show that Tanya has to look stuff up. <laughs> Don't hey, take it out only because Martin thinks him. Because Martin is—is is it fiction? Is it a story? She's or an is American it, food she, journalist. It's a story. Oh, that's a different person I'm thinking of. Um, she's written all these okay, books, and yeah, this is definitely a woman. Who are you okay. thinking of, Martin? Can we can we Google a title? <laughs> yes. I'll have to Google what it. Title, and I don't what title, do that on the what air. What title what are you the thinking? Title? The title of the book. It's that big thick book. It was popular when I was in college. Big thick. Escher Goodell and Peace. It's called. What Escher? Escher Goodell. E S C H. E S C H. I think Escher E R. Goodell G O D E L and Bach. And Bach. An eternal golden braid. Douglas Hofstadter. <laughs> Please do not cut this, Piper, because this is Moving priceless. Along. MFK this is prime content. <laughs> prime content. Honestly. Honestly. Oh. <laughs> it's been a joy. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, we get to dig deeper now, into Martin's mind. What we're really here for is to just, yeah. I'm here to be psychoanalyzed. <laughs> well, we're oh. going to psychoanalyze your article here. <laughs> yes. I had to look up Paul Mary. I did too. I didn't know. I've never heard that I word did before. Too. What? You what? use the word palmary. P A L M A R Y. I am not familiar. <laughs> <laughs> well, who wrote this article? Why don't we take it from the top? Where is this, Where is this word? It's right here. In the second. Mm -hmm. I yeah. I I under. Yep. I got it too. Uh. Uh. Oh, right it's because right it's there. a quote. Mary Faith. That's why Martin used it. Oh, it's no. a quote. I have no Well, idea you would think you would know what the words were in the quote that you're using. No, I have no idea. Okay. Well, <laughs> well to orient okay. ourselves. <laughs> but we should say what article it is. Right. right. Uh, you wrote in The Classical Teacher an article entitled Three Ways to Think About Athens and Jerusalem. Okay. And you gave us three historical viewpoints on how we've viewed these two cultures. Yeah. Anybody else tell me what, what I wrote? And what you one of the interesting things you said at the beginning was that this was a raging debate. Yes. Yeah. Well, tell yeah. us what was the debate? Where was the threat? What was the tension? Well, and, okay. And I guess I was wondering too, like, how long has this been raging? Yeah. I yeah. this okay. raging debate. Raging, yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. So the what this is talking about is this relationship between two cultures that has been going on in the Western mind. Um, since the early, uh, uh, since the early centuries uh, after Christ, okay, um, because you had Greece. Greece had existed for several hundred years before this, 
and they develop this culture, which which is at the heart of Western culture. It, it is basically the culture that has taken over, whether we know it or not. We just that's the air we breathe, right? And so then you have Jerusalem, the culture of Jerusalem, mm. which is a, um, a a spiritual culture, a religious culture, and from the early times, I mean, even when uh, Alexander conquered the known world, I mean, he came through and conquered Israel, mm. and and. And uh, Alexander uh, has taken over all, you know, all the known world, and then he dies, and his his kingdom falls apart immediately because it's divided between his generals. Mm. And so at that time, and I don't, I don't, I don't know if it was the, I can't even remember actually if it was the it was Ptolemy or one of these other generals who who was. Uh, I know Tommy was in Egypt. I don't know if he controlled the middle, the mm, Pal- all of the Middle of, East, uh, Palestine geographically, <laughs> um, and uh, and so it that so you get the Hellenic world of Hellenism. Uh, uh, Hellas is the word for is the Greek word for Greece. So you get you get that Hellenistic culture, that Greek culture, and so even the Jews are Hellenized really early in a, mm. a centuries before. Mm. Um, before Christ, which is why when you get to New Testament times, they're reading out of a Greek Bible. They're reading mm-hmm. the Septuagint translation, the, the Jews, um, more frequently than they're reading the Hebrew, the original Hebrew. So, um, and then of course the New Testament is written in Greek, in the Greek language. So there's all kinds of things that come from this, you know, this, this, this culture of the Jews and this culture of the Greeks coming together. And this has been seen, what the, the thesis of my article is, this has been seen in three different ways. Hmm. Um, one, the first of them, Tertullian, he's an early church father, I know, second, third century, I, I can't remember. Um, and he is, he's saying, this is pagan stuff. We need, we don't, we need to be focusing on Christ and we need to be focusing on Christianity and we this don't is need to be mixing it. This is faith. Uh, palmary Mm-hmm. Tanya, what did, what did, when you looked that up, what did that mean? Praise, uh, worthy. Like worthy of praise? Um, what was the definition? I can't remember the specific, but that is what it, I mean, it was just really a simple definition <laughs> um, that just meant worth, a faith that's worthy, a mm-hmm. faith that, I can Google it. Yeah. But anyway, before, while she's Googling, um, <laughs> the, the, uh, the, First, uh, one of the first attempts at, at 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 what do we think about this relation between Greece and the Hebrew culture and the, what is now the Christian culture is a sort of a, a conflict mm-hmm. that they're not compatible. Uh, this is what Tertullian is voicing: What hath Athens to do with Jerusalem? Mm. Right, and while that's going on and in, 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 in later decades, you, you get the Eastern Cappadocian fathers because you, you have a separation this time. You've got the Eastern Empire um, and you've got um, uh, the, the, the Western Empire in Rome. Uh, uh, you've got, you've got, a, you've got a, in two, two centers of learning, Constantinople and Rome. And there's a different way of thinking about things. So, that, so if, you, if you read um, the writings of St. Basil Gregory of Nazianzus, um, Gregory of Nyssa, it, it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a more Greek approach 
to a more Eastern approach to, to theology and the scriptures. Whereas in Rome, you're, you know, Augustine is probably the most well-known of the, of the, of the fathers there, but they're both dealing with this question mm-hmm. and they're, they're both trying to figure out what is the relationship between Athens and Rome. And interestingly enough, and this, uh, this is in uh, Yaroslav Pelican's book, Christianity and Classical Culture, which is a great study mm-hmm. of this. Mm-hmm. He points out that they even came up with the same analogy into apparently for all I can tell, independently of one another, hmm. which is this that analogy of the Egyptian gold. You know, they say that's that, a really good analogy. Oh, it is a good analogy, I, and that was at the end of your article. Yeah, I and, thought that was fascinating. And it, it's it's uh, it, it, they both came up with it. The 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 Cappadocian fathers and Augustine. Do you think they saying, surely one of them got it from the other? I, you don't I, think I don't so? Think they didn't have mass means of communication. They yeah. didn't have cell phones. They didn't have yeah, they, yeah, yeah, right. They didn't have cell phones to look what Augustine each other was said. Saying. Let me Google this and see what they're doing in the east. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, in the analogy is basically um, that when the Jews were captive in Egypt, and Moses comes and there's the ten plagues, and finally they've had enough of this. There's been ten plagues on. Okay, on we Egypt. know the story. Let's just move you, on to you, the analogy. They don't know the story. They totally know the story mm. of Pharaoh and Moses. Oh, they know. Can that we story. just get to the Red Sea? I was about to end it before okay. you interrupted, <laughs> so we've wasted a good fifteen seconds because of your interruption. Um, <laughs> and so, so they're leaving, and as they're leaving, and it's something that that a lot of people don't even notice in the account is that they're showered with gold and jewels by the Egyptians. And it's it's not clear exactly why they're doing this. I guess because they think this this god must be so great that he's just basically embarrassed all the Egyptian gods, or I don't know why that is. Didn't God well, tell them? To yeah, do God tells they, the Jews to go ask yeah. their neighbors they for their oh, okay, jewels. Okay. Like it's yeah, sort of like we're it. celebrating. Can we borrow? And okay, they so borrow, we know the story. He off. does not. Yeah. <laughs> but but uh, so they take that gold out into the wilderness, and um, they make a golden calf, which is. Not a good thing to do, um, and I <laughs> think I think Moses doesn't Moses force them afterwards to ingest a little bit of that. Uh, oh, yeah, he grinds <laughs> it into dust. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but so they do bad things with it. But it's also the gold that is used to to fashion the the, the uh, articles of the tabernacle, mm. the vessels of the tabernacle, which I had forgotten. Yeah. So so God apparently doesn't have any problem with this. He's asking them to use it for His own glory. Even though it is Egyptian gold. Even though it is Egyptian mm-hmm. gold. It's something from a pagan. So the so the analogy is that that we should use rational thought that the Greeks that we have should, that the pagans had some things that they had discovered that are not bad because right. they discovered them. Uh they're actually good. God ultimately created them. And just because a pagan used it is is no reason that, to, to reject say it, it isn't good or to reject mm-hmm. it. I like that when you say it would seem um, that Tert- Tertullian would mm. seem to condemn the disciplines of logic and rhetoric, but that would undercut his own position since he uses the devices of mm-hmm. logic and rhetoric in his condemnation of yeah. Greek thought. I'm always interested in hearing arguments <laughs> against the value of argument. Uh, it's, yeah. You know. um, yeah, right. Um, and so so the, the judgment, the more universal judgment of the church, East and West, is that we should, we should use the good things even if they come from a pagan. You know, the, the thing, not only just physical mm. objects that, that, that Augustine's talking about, but Augustine's drawing that analogy. No, because he's making this express argument to, from, uh, you know, against people who were saying this in Rome. Uh, and he's saying, I mean, because cause he's writing, uh, he, he's writing in, in on, um, uh, I'm, why am I blanking on the book? Um, he's writing against these 
not only well, he's, he's writing against these people who are saying what Tertullian is saying, mm. and he's making the argument that no, this is number one, this is not why Rome is falling because the Christians took over. That was one of the, the arguments they were saying. But they were arguing, also arguing against pagan learning, and he's saying no, using the <coughs> Egyptian gold argument and other arguments. We should use this. This is good stuff. Mm. Uh, the, the pagans discovered some truths. And I think we forget that the pagans were God created. <laughs> and they it's not their fault that they didn't have the revelation yet. Well, I just, I hate to reject God's creation. Well, uh, if, just, you're, if you're a creature just because created it's in the image of God, then the things, there's going to be some things that come from you that are mm-hmm. good. Right, that ha- that are God created, are God like created. our right. sense and of rationale and the use, our ability to use our brains, our intellect, all of those things, we are mm-hmm. created in the image of God. Right, and and the the thing about Genesis, right, is that God in creating us in His image, right, He gives all men reason, not just Christians. Right, right. So it's not just you know we Christians have the ability to think, and we ought to use it that way. But no, like. Everybody has that option, and it's just it, it particularly historically, the Greeks that really focused on that. Mm-hmm. Right. Roman Greece, mm-hmm. and then I talked about the kind of opposite theory, the reconciliation theory, uh, which um, comes most famously uh, from Matthew Arnold, who was one of the great Victorian thinkers at the end of the nineteenth century, mm-hmm. and he's he's saying that. Um, the Hebrews really valued knowing, knowledge, mm. and the, uh, I'm sorry, the Greeks mm. valued knowledge, while the, while the Hebrews were more concerned with doing. So, so intellectual, the Greeks were intellectuals, the, the Hebrews um, valued holiness, and that those aren't, there's nothing inconsistent between those two things. Um, that's, that's his <laughs> argument. I think there's a certain truth to that, but I don't think it captures everything. And then finally, the the dialectic theory, which comes from um, Joseph Strauss, who was one of the great, very influential thinker in in politics and philosophy. Um, and this is what I'm talking about here. Is it comes from Jeffrey Hart's book, "Smiling Through the Cultural Catastrophe," where he's taking mm-hmm. uh, Strauss's position and rearticulating it. And that that mm-hmm. position is basically look. These two things are different, and sometimes they do seem to conflict. They seem to be inconsistent. But what Strauss argues, and Jeffrey Hart argues in his book, is that that's okay. Mm. That that's the way reality actually is. It has things that are paradoxical. There are two truths that don't seem to con- that don't seem to come together, and yet they do. And so, what Strauss and Hart say is that tension between those two positions, seemingly inconsistent positions is the energy that has driven Western civilization Mm. to its achievements. That's what I, to me, that's, that's the more sophisticated look at this and seems to me more true because there are certain things that you have a hard time reconciling and yet, you know, they're both true, but you could effectively boil down the reconciliation and the dialectic theories into one. That's what I was thinking. They're not that different. Are they? I mean, certainly Tertullian is on the opposite side, but these yes. other two well, I think that, feel well, very. I, I said in here that the, that the the dialectic theory kind of comes out of the reconciliation theory, mm-hmm. or you but said it's like a further saying, development. What, yeah, what Strauss and, and Hart are saying 
not it's not quite as easy as somebody like Matthew Arnold would say. Sure, but they're both getting at the same point Mm -hmm. that both, I mean, just introduce our our Mm -hmm. theme as reason and faith. Mm -hmm. They're both saying those Mm -hmm. we need to hold those two things together and not elevate necessarily one over the other as the only way to know. Right. Mm -hmm. And we've got and we're going to have paradox, even if you even if you deny anything but faith. There are paradoxes there too. Right, because the Christian positions like um, the nature of Christ, you know, uh, three persons, one nature. Right. I mean, to a Greek. I think you confused a couple of theological concepts in that statement. Impossible. <laughs> or the deity of Christ. Oh, I'm Christ. sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, 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 I'm sorry. Okay, good. I, I, was I, I, I was like, I, I'm sure I, I put the Trinity and the about. deity of Christ. Yeah, the deity yeah, of Christ was your yeah, example in the yeah, article, a, and it was great. <laughs> two natures, one person. <laughs> your yeah. article was great. Yeah, yeah, right, but, what but, you what just like, happened there? Can't yeah, tell you. Yeah, but just shut up. Um, <laughs> Uh, two per, end, yeah. two natures, one person. I'm sorry in the in in the identity of Christ, <laughs> and three persons in the one nature with God, the triune with one God. God and one God. Right. So those Is things. That nature. Hmm. Okay. Anyway, keep going. Um, three. <laughs> uh, those <laughs> things seem to violate the uh, the law of non contradiction because, uh, but they don't. Really, but how exactly those two truths can come together is 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 complicated, right? And that's why that's why the pagans could never come to an that's idea of the Trinity that to, had right. to be revealed, right. be, because the it's it's not something that that reason can come to by itself. Yeah, right. You, that that the reason does falter. In in knowing everything, although it was by reason that the father, the reason the fathers used to come to those doctrines at the same time. Yes, because right? there was revelation that yes. they were then able to then say, "What does this mean?" Mm-hmm. Yes. And through having honed their ability to reason through the tools the pagans had developed, mm-hmm. they were able to say, "Okay, well then this is what this revelation has to mean for yes. us." Right. I like your ending too. Mm, the the lesson is clear. The same substance can be used for good or for bad purposes. The Greeks and Romans, which is back to your Egyptian mm-hmm. gold. Mm-hmm. The Greeks and Romans often went astray, but the best of them were searching for truth and they often found it. The tools they used to find it should not be despised because they can be misused. Mm-hmm. Very nice. I like the, you didn't read the last part. I love oh, the last. Yeah. Okay. Read it, oh. Jess. Reason is not the enemy of faith, but rather its partner whether to solve earthly problems or to recognize a heavenly truth. It, Darn. When, when, <laughs> Goodness. when I read this, what I, what I wrote down was, was pride, right? Like the problem that I think Tertullian is trying pride. to. Pride. He's talking about pride. I think, Go the, ahead. I think, the, thank you. I think. <laughs> Look the, it up on Google. <laughs> problem that Tertullian is trying to sort of um, shine a light on is that, if we try to say that we can know everything through reason, then we're going to end up denying faith. Right. And because what need do we have for it? That's right. If we've, if we've got it all figured out. Yeah. And, and so it's the, that, that was his fear. And because of his fear, he throws it all out Mm -hmm. as opposed to saying, this is a gift that has to be used very carefully. 
Um, and I, and I think that's just something that we have to, this tension you talk about, right. That, that that's, that's the tension we have to hold is that if we rely solely on our reason, we're going to end up saying it doesn't make sense that Jesus can be both God and man at the same time. Mm -hmm. Right. right? But that we can, we can get pretty far with reason. That the resurrection makes no sense at all. Right. Right. But then, but then faith takes us beyond well, where and we can it's, get. it's interesting also that the trajectory of thought leading up to the birth of Christ is more and more towards monotheism. I mean, when mm-hmm. you read Plato, it's like, this guy's a pre-Christian. He's, 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 he's not here, but he's on the trajectory. Mm. Yeah. And so reason, you know, reason is a handmaiden of truth, but it, it's, not, it's not the determining factor, mm-hmm. right? And so I think I think that what the church really has come to is uh, that that reason is valuable in itself, and it can take you a long way, but it can't get you ultimately to those mm-hmm. you know, the Trinity, mm-hmm. the nature of Christ. Those yeah, and it's an it's an interesting tension because my understanding of of the trajectory of actually Islamic thought is right. If you go back to the Middle Ages, you have. Avicenna and Averroes, who are doing actually a lot of philosophical mm-hmm. thought with very influential on Aquinas. Aristotle, yes, yeah. very very influential on Aquinas. So this is this is within the first four to six hundred years of of Islam, and then shortly after them comes Ibn Al Ghazali, and he writes the Folly of the Philosophers. And what he does is he makes a strong case that what Islam stands for is submission. And that includes submission of your rational faculties. And so mm. you do not the, the, trying to make the, the, the it, trying to make Islam accord with reason is folly. It is something that ought not to be attempted and makes, makes their whole trajectory of thought kind of go veer off the Western path of these two things are held in tension. So they would be more on Tertullian's side? Yes. Yeah. Very Muslims? much so. Yes. Very I, much did so. Not, I did not know that. We, we, a position that is many times called fideism, faith only, no reason, as opposed, mm-hmm. faith yeah. as opposed to reason. And in my, my summer class, I'll be teaching again uh, this summer at memoriacollege.org, uh, <laughs> the uh, introduction to, cla- to classical education. We read this heart reading and we talk about this. And, and one of the things I, I do bring up in that class is that fact that that you did have these early Muslim philosophers who were engaged in this same project, um, this dialectical conciliation project. Uh, but be, as you as you pointed out, it, it it crashed and burned, and so that today um, Islam is a very fideistic religion, mm-hmm. and it has it doesn't have. Uh, I'll say this with qualification: it doesn't really have. There aren't a bunch of, of Muslim philosophers out right. there because it's faith only. Mm. Now, I, I, I ran in, interestingly enough, at a, at a conference this, this last summer, I ran into an Islamic classical educator, mm. and he contested with me on that. He said there actually still is a tradition, but it's not the—, the um, it's not the it's controlling not philosophy uh, view no. of, the, of, of Islam. Right. And that's, and that I think that's a very good clarification is that there was a strong strand of Islam that was headed down sort of the, the, 
reason and, and, and faith reason, yeah. root. And and that just got smashed down to there there is a strand, but instead of it being a significant strand of Islam, it's not the mainstream. It's a it's a it's a, it's a minimal strand. Did he it. recognize that it's not the mainstream? Yeah, he did. Yeah, okay. but, but he, he, said, was, he said he said he thought maybe I was overstating it a little bit right. to say it doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, it, okay. It yeah. Exist. it's and, just it's it's not the it's not Islamic Orthodox. Right. But right. In, in the same ways, though, that you there are pockets and strands of Christianity that are sure. fideistic. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, that's a good point. And so you that's know, that's right. As much as like this, this view of the church is ancient, right? Mm-hmm. This view, mm-hmm. this view of seeing reason and faith going together is ancient. But even even with that, right, we also have an ancient strand that rejects it, right? Mm-hmm. The Tertullian strand. And so like we have to recognize that even within our own, you know, uh faith community, right? You're gonna find you're gonna find people that say, actually, no, like I don't value learning logic and rhetoric mm-hmm. because all I want to focus on is the palmary faith. Mm-hmm. Which does mean praiseworthy. You found that on Google? Yes. Well, I'd looked it up earlier, but then I would just, I started doubting myself because I thought that why not just say praiseworthy, but um, this was Tertullian speaking here, not you. Mm. Yes. Oh, Palmer, he's the Palmer. Yes. Yes. Didn't even Rather, the the translator of Tertullian that used the word Palmer. Oh, that's true. That's true. Right. Um, So I noticed that we are all on this with this article with a Memoria Academy full page ad on the other side. Was this on purpose? Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> uh, actually, Tanya, I believe it was I'm you. I'm surrounded that chose by Memoria Academy pe- people here. Yes, I believe you chose this article. Um, I did, and but so, my picture's not on here. <laughs> with your like all. editorial. With your alls. Yeah. Paul, I like where you took that. And I think it's a helpful springboard to ask maybe a silly question, but one that's in my mind, if you'll entertain it. So how does what we just talked about come to bear? What is What difference does it make today for us? It's it's fascinating to think about, and it really helps clarify things to to ponder like the the trajectory with Islam and how that comes to bear. That's fascinating. And even to think about how there are probably um, categories of of faith that, that we can think about or communities around us that are more faith alone or faith only. But how else do we see that or what difference does it make to to think about these things now? Well, I think for us, you know, as classical educators, I mean, people ask, you know, why are you reading Homer and Virgil and all these Greeks? I mean, the Greeks weren't Christians. Why, why, are, why are they of any value? And mm-hmm. if you come at it from a mentality of, you know, these are, these are the truths that these human beings made in the image of God were able to come to themselves. And it, to me, it's a fascinating story of how all the pointers— are, are to the things that we now as Christians consider virtues um, and how that was foreshadowed in, in all of these things that the Greeks in particular, because they were the most advanced of the pagans in this regard. That, that, to me, that's a fascinating story. And if you're able to put that all together by seeing this whole um, panorama of, of events and ideas and, uh, and to me, I just find that fascinating. I do too. And I find it comforting to think that the, all of this 
creation has all and continues to work together mm-hmm. um, to point in one direction. Mm-hmm. Is For me, that's a comfort. It's a, it strengthens your faith to know mm-hmm. that. Well, and I think the point Martin was making earlier about Alexander coming through and Hellenizing the Jewish people, like God found it appropriate to prepare the minds of the people he was going to become incarnate in with the Greek philosophy, right? There's already this, this melding prior to the coming of Christ that, that really prepared the soil. And so why would we not? Because I mean, it's, it's all through John's prologue, right? Like that is clearly a reference to Greek philosophy. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and, and Mitchell and I were talking yesterday about, some some sections of Paul's writings and where you're clearly seeing references to platonic ideas of, you know, the body and the soul and things like that. And so, you know, if God prepared the people that way, then why would we not prepare our own kids that way? When you say the prologue, are you saying, are you talking about John 1, John in, the 1 in the beginning is the word? Well, yeah, I mean, the, when I run into people, Oh, well, I just think when it's I run part into Christians, John. welcome to Paul's mind. <laughs> Both Paul's. <laughs> when I run into Christians who who contest the use of reason, I mean, you do run into people like that, and it's always like, and 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 we don't we don't need to listen to the pagans. Like, what language is it that the New Testament is written in? Greek. Okay, we're, we're not supposed to like the Greeks, but the the New Testament is written in Greek. And there's all kinds of things that go along with that. I mean, the fact, one of those things in terms of the, this, this, this story, this leading up to thing is I, I, I think maybe the Greek language was invented uh, for the new Testament to be written in. I mean, there's a certain sense in which I think that's true and, and that it would have the terminology. Uh, for example, I mean, the word logos, this is a word that, that, pre-Socratic philosophers were using um, uh, to uh, talk about this principle behind everything, the operating principle of the universe. And I mean, it's jam-packed with meaning. Yeah, yeah. oh, it, it's got this, this huge meaning. And, and so, so, um, so when John, at the beginning of the gospel, says, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with, was with God, and the Logos was God— that had to have hit a Greek like a ton of bricks, right? Mm-hmm. That that word, that's the word that the Greek, the thing the Greeks were looking for behind everything all along, and that's the very word John uses to, to say who Christ is. Mm-hmm. That blows my mind. Yeah. Um, so, and I think that was planned. I'm a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> <laughs> a metaphysical conspiracy theorist. <laughs> oh, and it's it's beautiful to think about how what you just described, how they're all in service to the individual soul and also to the broader community historically and then Mm -hmm. for generations. That's really beautiful to think about. Did we miss anything? Any? Probably, but... Probably we did. We'll make a show of what we didn't do here. Oh, well, friends, 
Thanks for, thanks for joining us on this discussion today. We hope that it was enriching to your mind and to your faith. And if you haven't yet, you can subscribe to The Classical Teacher to get it in your mailbox for free. Just go to memoriapress.com. There's a catalog tab and you can put in your information and we will get it to you. So yeah, thanks for joining us and we'll be back soon. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Classical Etc. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to check out all the other shows on the Memoria Press Podcast Network. This has been Classical Etc. Thanks for being here, and we'll see you again soon. You've been listening to the Memoria Press Podcast Network, providing a classical Christian perspective on the world of education. To learn more about Memoria Press, visit us at memoriapress.com. To connect with us, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.